Morning, folks. Yes, sir. Robert Sutton seems like a happy man. Didn't want to talk about it too much, I guess, with his father-in-law in the room. But if you want to know why he's smiling so much this morning, there's a seminar this Sunday afternoon on sex. You're, you're invited to it, and some of you really need it. Matter of fact, fact is we all need it. And uh, we are doing a little seminar of, of what we call a, a issues forum. We have these about every six months. Uh, the last one, I think, was on how to drink like a Christian. Uh, and this one's going to be on, on uh, how to be a sexual person like a Christian. There's some pr- profound issues in our culture and in the church and in our lives together that we want to discuss. So any of you want to come, uh, those of you who are not Second Presbyterian folks, uh, you're welcome to be with us at 4 o'clock and bring somebody with you. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're saying it's for 6th grade up. you got a 6th grade kid, 5th grade kid, bring them. Yeah, there used to be some things that we didn't, didn't even talk about in public because they were so sensitive. Uh, I'm sorry, those days are long gone. Uh, there are too, too many things going on in our culture for us to be quiet about it. So uh, we'll try to be nuanced and we'll try to be uh, delicate and sensitive and all the rest, but we're going to address the real issues that are out there for us in, our, in the church and in the world. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 19. And man, do we ever come to a great text today. My goodness. You, know, you slog through all those beasts and harlots and, you know, fire and brimstone, all this, and then you come to Revelation 19. It's real good. And we're closing in on the conclusion of Revelation, which has got to be the highlight of the Bible. Uh, I was saying last night at our evolution creation seminar that uh, one reason we want to defend creation is because it so clearly uh, demonstrates the power of God. And that we have to integrate science and revelation so that we understand it properly. And those two are to be integrated because God reveals himself in both the natural creation and in the scriptures. Uh, but there are three big moments when God displays his incredible power in the most awesome ways. Uh, one is creation. And if you were here last night and heard some of the strains of Haydn's creation, just to hear his symphonic description of sunrise, that first sunrise. <laughs> you got to hear it. That's going to be on Sunday night, uh, April 24th, a week from Sunday. It's unbelievable. But it just is, is the power of God's work in creation. You have it also in resurrection. And I'm sure that each of you in your churches, if you belong to church, you enjoyed the celebration of the resurrection, another grand demonstration of God's power. The third major moment, of course, is, is the moment we're looking at, the end of the age when God demonstrates his raw power, uh, and it is absolutely grand. So we turn to that now in Revelation 19. You remember that the harlot, that is the whole system of worldliness, all that that opposes our Savior, has been destroyed. And the wedding feast of the Lamb has come. We're invited to it because we're being wed to our heavenly bridegroom. He's... uh, He is consummating our relationship. We will be His and He will be ours forever and ever. And the imagery that's used is that of a wedding. We've been waiting because we've been betrothed. We've been engaged, as it were. We've had an unbreakable relationship, but we just haven't been able to enjoy the honeymoon. And now the honeymoon's coming. 
uh, and very soon when we will enjoy His presence and enjoy all of the love and affirmation and encouragement and inclusion that a human being could ever want will be ours one day soon. And then, to go along with that, we get a version of that last day, that last battle, uh, in Revelation 19, uh, chapter 11, as now John will tell us that he, uh, verse 11, uh, John will tell us that he, it's not only that a door to heaven is opened up, but you'll see a change of language here. Heaven itself is opened up. All of heaven. And here comes the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's look at it. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Amen. Okay, folks, this is our Lord Jesus Christ in the last day, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. What we want to see here, first of all, we're dividing this in halves. Verses 11 through 16, we're seeing Jesus Christ as a mighty victor. Jesus Christ as a mighty victor. Now, this is an aspect of Jesus Christ that through the centuries of studies of Christ, was sometimes sublimated under other aspects of Jesus' ministry. For example, Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, uh, uh, or uh, Jesus uh, as the Savior, Jesus as a prophet, priest, and king, so on. And uh, especially in the studies of the atonement of Jesus Christ, there are several models uh, in, uh, there are several words that are used in the New Testament that really frame our understanding of what it means to have Jesus atone for our sins. And if you remember way back, about eight years ago, nine years ago, in the Romans, how many of you are here for our studies in Romans? Would you raise your hand? Okay, all right. Well, you will remember, I'm sure, that when we were in Romans chapter 3, we discussed some of the the words that are used. For example, ransom. 
Ransom is a payment that is made to spring somebody out of prison uh, or to spring someone out of the clutches of the devil himself. So we were ransomed. That is a word that's used for what Jesus did for us in the atonement. Propitiation. That is, he satisfied the wrath of his Father as a sacrifice, as a substitute for us. That word is used for Jesus. He is a propitiation in Romans chapter 3. Redemption. He redeems us. And you can look at all these words. Reconciliation. What does that word mean? And you look at what the word means right out of the Old Testament that's used in the New Testament to describe what Jesus did in the atonement. And those studies have been done for many, many years, looking at just word studies that will show us the nature of the atonement. But a man named Gustav Allen, uh, in the late 19th century, I believe it was, wrote a book entitled Christus Victor, and uh, in Latin, Christ the Victor. And he simply said, there's another aspect of the atonement that's being overlooked. And that is that Jesus Christ, with his blood shed on the cross and by virtue of the resurrection, came to conquer and to destroy the powers of evil. And uh, Gustav Allen said, don't forget that aspect of the atonement. Yes, he laid his life down as a sacrifice. Yes, as a, as a priest, he went into the Holy of Holies for us, taking his own blood. Yes, he ransomed us by his blood and bought us back all these, you know, trade language, a commercial language of being ransomed or... Uh, the language of sacrifice and propitiating God and so on. But don't forget that he's a mighty victor. And the verses, of course, that are common for us to refer to are Colossians 2 and Hebrews 2. Why don't you look at those with me? Uh, Colossians 2, verse 14. The apostle has been talking about uh, our salvation. He says in verse 13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. So he's talking about, in in chapter 13, about our condition being dead in sins. And he said, this is what he did. He made you alive. He forgave us all our sins. Verse 14. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Okay, and we're starting to get a little violent here now. God is so determined to rid you of your sins, He takes those sins and He nails them to the cross. This is the kind of language that Paul's using. Look at verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them. Here's the word, triumphing over them by the cross. So, when we're told in Matthew's Gospel, I think it is, That when Jesus died, he died and gave out a loud voice, phone megala, like megaphone. He gave a loud cry or loud voice. So often men will think, well, that's Jesus in his last agony, just giving out his last breath. Well, in Matthew, you may remember at that moment is when we're told the curtain in the temple is rent. Not from bottom to top as men would tear it, but from top to bottom. It says, it makes a point of saying, from top to bottom. How'd that happen? There's only one person who could get to the top of that curtain, tear it. God tore it. And so when Christ gave out this last breath in a loud voice, some speculate, Gustav Allen speculates, 
That was a triumphant roar. Because Jesus Christ knew what He was doing on the cross. And when He gave up His life, it is finished on the cross. He roared with a mighty triumph. That's our Savior. That's our mighty warrior, our victor, uh, who is Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. You get some similar language. The writer of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior even to Moses and so on. And he describes why. He says of Jesus in Hebrews 2, verse 14, Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity, so that by His death, He might destroy Him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And you notice in this case, We're looking at Jesus as mighty conqueror who destroys evil and destroys our bondage. Okay, in the first instance, it was delivering us from sin. Here, we're being delivered from our oppressor as slaves. So he's a great liberator uh, destroying our oppressor. But notice that in this case, the writer of Hebrews doesn't use uh, the cross. He's using the incarnation, the cradle. He's saying that His whole incarnation was for this purpose. So when you think about Christmas, you you normally don't think about Jesus on a white horse with a sword coming out of His mouth. But that was the purpose of the incarnation. God sent the devil's arch enemy to destroy the devil. And that's what the birth in Bethlehem was all about. So what we're seeing here is the grandest expression in all of the Bible of Christus Victor. Now, what we want to do for just a minute as we talk about this is to notice some contrasts. And first of all, I'd like for you to notice the contrast in Hebrew in, in Revelation 19 with what's just gone before. We have this picture of our salvation like at the Lord's Supper. And here we are at this great feast and our lover, the lover of our soul, the one who will never leave us nor forsake us, the one who gave his life for us, the Lamb, is being celebrated and we're gathered at his table and each of us takes up the cup because we belong to him in allegiance to him and he belongs to us. We're family. And we've got this great love feast that we're enjoying and then we're thrust into this warlike scene. And it's just a grand reminder, we're going to see it as we go through this text, that, gentlemen, our salvation is both the love feast and the battle. It's both the table of the Eucharist and going out in, into the world with the sword of the Spirit. It's both. And too often, men will seek to have one without the other. They either try to go out there as activists into the world and stir things up and take charge and conquer the world, but they forget uh, the affection of Christ for them at the table. And they fail to worship. They fail to get to know Him. And to understand why they're out there in the world beating snakes. Well, it's because he loves you. And he's yours. And he's your older brother. On the other hand, some guys just love to hang around, worship, and study the Bible, which is great. But they never understand that what this is all about is getting out and fighting for the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. So you, you'll notice how things that we tend to separate according to our preferences and personalities, God puts together and says, you're to be engaged in both of these. You're to be men who know how to get down on your face and love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And you're to be the men who know how to take up the cudgel, go out into this world, and love your neighbors yourself, and engage even the powers of evil in this world. But also notice the, another contrast, and that's what I'll call the contrast with the American Jesus. And these ideas that I'm going to show you come from several books that I've looked at in the past. Stephen Prothrow has one that came out either last year or year before called The American Jesus. Uh, and uh, a man named uh, Foxman, I believe it is, uh, also wrote a, a similar book. Uh, and then you have Yaroslav Pelikan who wrote uh, Jesus Through the Centuries. And he surveys how Jesus was seen through 2,000 years of the church's existence. And so we combine some of these things really more recently, the 18th century and forward, sort of images of Jesus. But one is, of course, the enlightened sage. We see, you know, in some eras of American life, Jesus was a product of the Enlightenment. Uh, He was the one who understood things. And he was the wise man. And he was kind of like the, he, he was like a Solomon who would give proverbs and tell us how to live life, the enlightened sage. Some saw him as the universal man, the product of the Renaissance, uh, the man who is the man. Behold the man, says Pilate. And here's the universal man who shows us what real manhood is all about. And then you have with Emerson and others in the 19th century, the poet of the spirit. He's a poet. He's a troubadour. Uh, he's, he knows how to uh, spin a, a, a yarn. He knows how to tell a story. He knows how to uh, give us grand ideas in very artistically aesthetic ways. And then you have, of course, the manly liberator. Uh, certainly, you would have a 19th century liberator who would liberate African Americans from their slavery. And Jesus would be seen in many ways as liberator. And, of course, he was, wasn't he? And then you see him in the early 20th century uh, through the Marxist movement as the liberator of the peasants. And this Jesus was kind of shaped into being, you know, a great Marxist, the manly liberator. Then you have Jesus, the sweet Savior, and many of the, the songs in the gospel tradition that we enjoy today. And he walked with me, and he talked with me, and he tells me I am his own. Isn't that good? Can we have a little musical accompaniment to that? Uh, the sweet Savior. And that would be the late 19th century, early 20th century. And really, kind of in keeping with the Romantic era. Uh, the era of the heart. Uh, when so much, we're not interested in Jesus as logician, uh, Jesus as enlightened sage. We're interested in Jesus, the lover, the sweet savior. Then you have, of course, you remember, uh, Jesus Christ superstar. Jesus the superstar. The champion. The hero. Like the athlete. Uh, notoriety. Uh, and then Jesus the world figure would be one that we see today. Jesus among other people like Buddha. And Muhammad, and Jesus stands among them all as a world figure who understands all people. Kind of like the Pope when he dies, all the world uh, comes to Rome, whether they're Roman Catholics or not, whether they're Christians or not, because John Paul II was a man of the world. And Jesus would be seen in somewhat the same ways by many people. Now, what's interesting about this list is that in every case, it reflects the, the biases or the tendencies of their own age. You know, whether it's the, the age of the Enlightenment, which would cover for enlightened or universal man, the age of the transcendentalists, who were the poets of the spirit, the age of Marxism, or the age of Romanticism, 
or the age of individualism or the age of pluralism. So what do we do? We make Jesus after whatever we want him to be. And after all, Jesus is probably just like us with a little extra. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just us pressed to the extreme. And that's the way everyone is tempted to think about Jesus Christ. It's just kind of your idea of the ideal. You know, you're the Plato figuring out the ideal, and Jesus would be the incarnation of whatever you consider to be the ideal. And what you'll notice is around the world and through the ages, people are always trying to take Jesus and shape him like a wax nose into their own image. And every one of us tends to do that. And what the Bible is constantly confronting us with is the need to bow the knee, bow the head to the real Lord Jesus Christ who really lives, who really exists, and who's really coming back in all of His glory. And we're confronted with that in Revelation 19 in a new way. Now let's look at this Jesus as He is presented to us, whether we would have thought of it ourselves or not, and whether He matches our age or not. The first thing we'll notice about Jesus is He is authoritative. Heaven stands open and He's on a white horse. Folks, sometimes we don't like authority. This age in which we live especially does not like authority. So I don't expect it to be a very popular idea. But your Lord Jesus Christ is the epitome of authority. My friend Steve Brown says he hates authority so much, stop signs even tick him off. And so some of us are that way. We just had this built-in resistance to authority. And if it's there, we just immediately react against it. Well, if so, here is a, a way in which you're going to, to change your life. Because there's no way for you to know the Lord Jesus Christ without knowing Him as authority with a capital A. He comes, heaven opens. He comes from heaven itself. And just like He said before He gave the Great Commission to His disciples, He said, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Me. Therefore, Go. And make disciples of all nations. So everything that we do, every mission that we ever had, is because the one who is consummate authority has given us that commission. And actually, everything in our life is to be lived out that way. Are you a man under orders? Or are you the master of your house? Which are you? You can't be both. He has to be the master of your life, your house, your business, everything. And everything you do, you're to be looking to Him as your authority and seeking the will of the Master in everything that you do. This is contrary to the natural way that men want to live. We want to be our own bosses. He's the boss. We need to get it clear. First thing John sees, not some door to heaven, all heaven opens up. And what does he see? Christ is warrior and ruler on his horse. Not on a donkey, by the way. When he came into Jerusalem, he came on a donkey. Why? Because he came offering peace. And he came in humility. And when he lived here on the earth, he lived in humiliation. He was not enthroned as he deserved to be. He gave up the accoutrements of his glory to live among us as one of us. So he came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Here he comes on a war horse because he is king. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And he's taken over and he's destroying all opposition. Time of peace is over. And it's coming soon. So our Lord Jesus Christ, who still presents Himself in the Gospels to us, still comes to us as a man of peace and offers reconciliation. We don't deserve it. We've opposed Him and we don't deserve reconciliation, but He still offers it. But He's saying there's coming a moment when heaven opens up and He will be on a horse. 
And the time of peace is over. It's now time of mopping up. So he is authoritative. That's who he is. So we must deal with it. And we must deal with it and like it. Remember, everything about the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't just say, well, okay, that's the way it is, that's the way it is. No, we say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah, that's who he is. So we must get our hearts and minds shaped so that we enjoy being his submissive soldiers. We enjoy having him as general and potentate and king. So he is authoritative. We enjoy it. Secondly, he is just. You get this in 11b, where we are told that with justice he judges and makes war. And he is given a name. And there are four instances of names here. Here's the first one. Faithful and true. With justice he judges. He is faithful and true. He is the North Star. He is the fulcrum on which all leverage is made. He is the center of the universe. He is absolute truth. If you want to know what absolute truth is, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is true. He is truth with a capital T. And He's faithful to it. He not only speaks the truth, everything that He says can you not only bank on, but you can bank on His example because He completely and perfectly lives it out. And He is faithful to everything that He says. Our pastors pray on every Wednesday morning and uh, uh, we were talking, uh, I was talking about somebody I had been reading recently who's a, a Christian ethicist. And I was complaining about him. And I was saying, you know, the guy's obviously a Christian. He's a very fine scholar. He's written several books. He, uh, he makes great observations, has keen insights. I said, you know, what really ticks me off is that in every one of his books I'm familiar with, I can't recommend them. Because he gets right up to the precipice of how you apply the issue, and he won't press ahead and apply his principles. It's as though he doesn't want to tick anybody off. He's trying to accommodate everybody. And he does this on one ethical issue after another. And I won't go into it because I'm not interested in telling you who it is. But, but uh, you know, here's a guy who has got great discernment, great credentials, tremendous experience, great knowledge, and he won't press ahead and make important moral distinctions that need to be made in our age. And it just ticks me off because I can't recommend these books. And it's a waste of, a, of someone's tremendous uh, experience and learning. So he's not faithful, in my opinion, to the, to the principles he himself discovers in his exegesis of the text and the way he does his theology. He starts to build all this in a very fine way, truthfully, and then he gets to the end and doesn't apply it. Now, gentlemen, that is not the way Jesus Christ is. He is true. He is also faithful. He knows the truth. He is the source of all truth. And he applies it completely at the end. And we are to model after him. Faithful and true. If it kills you, be faithful. It's worth it. It's better for you to die than to have one lie intentionally perpetrated out of your lips. So we, we must take the same approach and be faithful and true when we're dealing with issues of reality because that's who Jesus Christ is. And that's what He calls us to, uh, to be faithful. Thirdly, He is omniscient. His eyes are like blazing fire. If you think that your games at playing denial are somehow going to pull the wool over Jesus' eyes, you've got another thought coming. He is not fooled by any of this. You cannot pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. He sees everything. He not only sees what you do, he hears what you say, and he sees what you think. 
So we have to ask forgiveness for our thoughts because they're offensive to the holiness of Jesus Christ and He knows our thoughts. The devil doesn't know our thoughts. So you don't have to tell him that he owes you a thank, thank you for the thoughts you're having that were in keeping with His kingdom because he didn't know in the first place. But when you have those same thoughts and they're opposed to Jesus' kingdom, you do need to, to ask forgiveness because Jesus knows our thoughts. His eyes are like blazing fire. It sounds a lot like Revelation chapter 1, doesn't it? Those eyes can see uh, more than Superman who can see through walls. Jesus Christ can see through minds and hearts. Fourthly, He is regal. On His head are many crowns. And of course, you'll notice that this is compared to the seven crowns and the ten crowns of the beasts and harlots. They've got their crowns. They have their royalty. They have their dominions. But here the Lord Jesus Christ has many crowns. And that's the reason we sing this morning. Crown Him with many crowns, the Lord upon His throne. And so Jesus Christ comes and He has a multitude of crowns on His head. He is crowned as King and royalty. Notice fifthly, He is incomprehensible. Now, why do I say this? Look at 12c, the latter part of verse 12, and we're told He has, this is His second name that's given here. He has a name written on Him that no one knows but He Himself. What's the meaning of that? He has a name that's written on Him, but nobody knows it. Well, scholars debate it, but I would suggest this to you as probably the most obvious or first thing we ought to think about. Whenever God gives us a name for Himself, what is He basically doing? He is revealing to us His character. If He is the Lord of hosts, He's telling us He is King of all of heaven. He's the Lord and the Master of all heavenly beings. He has armies under Him. If He tells us that He is Jehovah, Yahweh, I am that I am. He's telling us that He's completely self-sufficient. He has what we call a seity. That is, He is because He is and He depends on no one else. So every name of God in the Old Testament, there are a bunch of them, tell you God's character. Now the same is true with Jesus Christ as the perfect expression of God Himself. When Christ comes and He is labeled faithful and true then we know something about Jesus because that's His name. When He tells us He is Christ, Christos, Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah, we look into the Old Testament and see what Messiah means. That means anointed. And we see who's anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings. So, Jesus tells us with that title, He's prophet, priest, and king. So, Basically, what the Bible is doing through the titles of God and of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is revealing His nature. And we're grateful for it. As a matter of fact, uh, in classic theology, it used to be that the theologian, when he got to the part about theology proper, which is the study of God's character proper, not the whole scope of biblical theology, but just who is God, the theologians would expound that idea by simply taking the names of God in the Scriptures and expounding each one of them. And that would provide the categories for who God is in His character. So now we come to Jesus Christ, and the second name that we have here in Revelation 19, we're told, no, 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 you don't know what it is. Why? Because we don't know everything about Christ. 
And we never will. Because He is so immense. He is technically incomprehensible. Now, when we say incomprehensible, we don't mean that He cannot be uh, comprehended at all or that He cannot be understood at all. Comprehend means to embrace everything about it. To understand everything about it. And you cannot comprehend God and you cannot comprehend Christ. You apprehend God and you apprehend Christ. That is, you go after understanding of them and you gain understanding of them, but you never completely understand them and you will not of Christ because He is God of God and light of light and He is very human nature. How are you going to understand that? It's a mystery and He's a mystery. So Jesus Christ in all of His glory is still presented to us is one who is so great, so glorious, he is beyond human comprehension. So he has a name that no one knows but himself. Verse 13, sixthly, he is vengeful. We've discussed this a little bit already, but here we are told he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Blood! Whose blood? Harlot, beast, false prophet, and everyone who is lined up with them. It's tough to take. You talk about our sweet Jesus, who is vengeful. And there's a little hymn you know, that calls Jesus meek and mild, born a child in Bethlehem. Gentlemen, He is meek, but He is not mild. And we have mislabeled Him. He comes to execute justice. And you saw in those early verses, he comes, uh, verse 11 is it, where we're told with justice he judges and makes war. He is a warrior and he executes his justice. He is the final executor of his just estate. And the problem with not believing in Jesus Christ the trouble with not trusting in Him is that you're trusting in something else and believing in something else. And that something else is the enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ who's coming back on a white horse. This is the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing as a preacher of the Gospel. It's the reason that you do what you do as a proclaimer of the Gospel and a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ to those around you. Because if they have not received Him as Lord, they have themselves as Lord, and even though they don't know it or understand it, behind themselves is the evil empire. And they've given themselves to that empire and to its emperor, the dragon himself. And they are marked as enemies of this great warrior. There is no neutral territory. There's no Switzerland in the kingdoms of the spiritual world. There's only the the goats and the sheep. No geep. Nothing in between. You're either on one side or the other. And the tragedy of the way in which we're brought into this world is that by nature we're brought into this world as children of the devil. Jesus says this in John 8 to Jewish people, church people. He says, you're sons of the devil. This is your natural condition. 
You may not like this. You may not even agree with me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And I'm telling you also, I believe it with all my heart. And that's the reason that the, the issues of the gospel are absolutely desperate issues, urgent issues. We must get the word out. Because the blood that is on the very clothing of the Lord Jesus Christ is the blood of His enemies because He will execute justice. And gentlemen, let's get our heads straight. It is just for Him to do this. It is right for Him to do this. There is such a thing as a just war. And we struggle with the nature of just war. When should we invade a country? When should we not? When should we defend ourselves militarily? When should we not? What makes a just war? And for 2,000 years, we've been debating it. But we know there is such a thing as a just war. And if you want to know the classic case of a just war, this is it. When the one who is holy, who is faithful and true, will execute perfect justice. And it will destroy those who have not come under his authority who have not come under His dominion. That's the message of the Scriptures. And Jesus makes it very clear from the beginning of the pages of the Gospels to the end. He doesn't wimp out on this. He's not trying to be politically correct with you. He's telling you the truth, that He's come to take over. And we'll see more of that in just a moment. So He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Seventhly, He is divine. His name is the Word of God. This is... The third name that's given in this text. Logos to Theu, the Word of God. And we know from John chapter 1, John's the author here of Revelation. He's also the author of the fourth gospel. And in the prologue to his gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Logos, the Word. So the word is this mysterious notion used in Greek philosophy, picked up by the Christians to use in a parallel way to the way that wisdom is used in Proverbs 1 through 10, where wisdom seems to be a personification of God Himself. And John picks up Logos instead of Sophia. He picks up Logos to speak of the Word as a personification of God and best to describe the second person of the Trinity. He is with God. That is, He's alongside God. He also is God. So you describe what it means to be a person in the Trinity. You're with God and you are God. And it's the mystery of three in one. And Jesus Christ comes back with this name of the deity on Him. That is who He is. He is God. And if you accept Him as anything less, you are simply taking glory and honor away from Him. His name is the Word of God. And then eighthly, He is accompanied. Look at verse 14. The armies of heaven were following Him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. We've seen this language before. If you look up to verse 8, The bride made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. So, we are the armies of heaven. We have a uniform. And that uniform is fine linen, bright, white, and clean. We are going to accompany the Lord Jesus Christ. This says the armies of heaven. Certainly, there will be angels involved. 
But you know, the martyrs are there too. And they're dressed in white, white linen. And the prophets and the apostles and all those who have gone before us. And I can't help but think that as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, the last day of God is the last trumpet of the archangel. And we, the dead in Christ, shall rise first and we shall meet Him in the air. That we too will have on our uniform, our linen, white, bright, and clean. And we will take up our horse and we will fight the battle with the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe we're going to be co-hosts of the living God in fighting this great battle. And every instinct you've got in your testosterone to take off the head of the evil one, and every time you find it difficult to restrain yourself and to control your anger against evil itself, and some of you are involved in ministries, for example, where you're fighting the very depths of darkness and evil itself day after day, and you find yourself wanting to take somebody's head off out there, I'm telling you, just hang on. Because there's coming a day when you'll be given your sword too, and you'll march in the Calvary of the Lord Jesus Christ and be able to take out God's vengeance on all the darkness that has been oppressing people for centuries and millennia, you will be a soldier of the Lord. Onward, Christian soldiers. Right now we go out into this world, not with swords loud clashing or stirring of rolling drums, but with deeds of love and mercy. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ comes. That's the way we're to carry out our work right now. But gentlemen, behind that and very soon after that, there's going to be a mighty battle. And you and I are going to see perfect justice executed based on perfect, absolute truth. Now, if that makes you resentful, or if in some way it doesn't seem fair to you, all I want to say to you is, you need to know my Lord Jesus Christ. You don't know Him yet. You don't know Him in His holiness yet. You don't know Him in His fairness yet. You don't know Him in His glory yet. Because if you know Him the way He's described in the Bible, you will find that a great day to which we look forward to eliminate all of evil and all of evil's minions around the world and through the ages. So what's going to happen is we are going to accompany the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know this is quite different from the way that a lot of men see their role in this life. So often we think of our salvation as something akin to a diploma that you put up on the wall. You know, some of you got your diplomas on the wall. I got mine on the wall back in my house where nobody else can see it. You know, because I don't want you to think I'm bragging. But of course I am. <laughs> so you got your diplomas and, you know, Man of the Year awards, you know, Industry Association president, you know, and all this. And you got all these diplomas on the wall. And you know what? You think about your salvation the same way. Well, you know, I did that too. Uh, I, I, you know, I was president of the class and I graduated summa cum laude and, and I'm a Christian. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, I really got it all. You know, and we think of our salvation when you came forward at 10 years of age and professed your faith and got baptized. Or those of you who are Roman Catholic, you, you had your first communion at six years of age and wear your little white clothes. And then pretty soon you stand up and you take your own profession of faith and all the rest. And all of you go through communicant class and you think, that's when I really did it. Got my name on the church roll. Got my diploma on the wall. Gentlemen, it's not a diploma. It's a commission for warfare that you have. It's a commission to be in the battle. It's a commission for war. To go into with His hosts into the battle. That's what you've got. When you got saved, you got saved to fight. To engage in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the reason that when Paul, when it's all over with Paul, and he's under arrest, and he knows his last day is just ahead of him, he's going to be beheaded, which he was, he said, I fought the fight. 
I've finished the race. I've done what I came to do. What, what, what did He come to do? Fight! So let's get on with it. We don't not fight just because we don't fight with swords. We fight with kindness. We fight with love. We fight with diplomacy. We fight with moral imperatives. We fight with words. But we fight. And one day we'll be given the sword. And we'll fight physically. But we're in an army. And one thing is very clear about our Lord is He calls us to be with Him. Notice, ninthly I think it is, He's warlike. A sharp sword comes out of His mouth to strike down the nations. This is a battle. And we're engaged in it. It's been been made very clear to us. And when you see the Lord Jesus Christ, even in His ministry on this earth, what do you see? You see a, a man at war. He does it through, once again, deeds of love and mercy. But he also engages the evil empire. When uh, last Sunday night, Tim Russell was uh, installed as uh, pastor here. And uh, the text of the evening was Mark chapter 1. What does Jesus do right after he calls his disciples to him? He goes out and starts teaching. What happens when he starts teaching? Demons start coming out. Everywhere. Where were these demons before? They were having a heyday before he got there. But when he gets there, they come out. Why do they come out? Because he's terrorizing them. What's he doing to terrorize demons? Speaking the truth. He is faithful and true. Demons hate the truth. That's the reason you find all the rationalizations for people who do all kinds of things. That's the work of the devil in taking truth and twisting it and distorting it and perverting it. You can take the sex industry. What is the sex industry? It's the, a perversion of a good thing. It takes a good thing and perverts it and distorts it for the devil's purposes, to destroy people instead of bless them. That's what it is. And everything you find, like every evil is a distortion of something that was a gift of God to be good. What does Jesus do? He just preaches the truth. What, what is the truth? That the kingdom is coming. You realize 2,000 years ago, the devils knew exactly what's going to happen. Not, not everything until it got revealed in John's revelation. Listen, they were reading this book just like we are. And they learned just like we did. And they're terrorized just like we ought to be if we're not in Christ. But when Jesus came, they knew that He came with a disguise, as it were. They knew that He came as a warrior, but came meek and lowly on an ass. They knew who He was, even though we didn't. And so when He came proclaiming the truth and proclaiming the truth that this is a total takeover, they come out of the woodwork raging at him. Are you here to destroy us, Jesus? And he says, be muzzled. And he takes absolute control of those demons. You watch. Look in Mark chapter 5. He goes across the lake where Jewish boys were not supposed to go because that was the devil's country over there. It was across the lake. It was Gentile country. The mothers of their, their sons said, don't go over there, boys. They, they do devil worship over there. I don't want you over there in that part of the neighborhood. And Jesus told his boys, come on, we're going across the lake. And they said, well, we're not supposed to go over there. Come on. And they get out, and what do they land on? A pig farm. Now think about that from a Jewish perspective, would you? No ham sandwiches, you know. No bacon and eggs. You don't touch pork. And here Jesus not only takes them to the devil-worshiping land, He takes them to a pig farm. And, well, it was a wealthy pig farm. 
Peter thought they were going to come across some you know, nice landowner, Gentile, wicked landowner, but at least a wealthy person. When out of the woods, out of the woods comes their first customer. A naked man with iron all hanging off his arms and his legs. And how'd you feel if your pastor called forth the first sinner, you know, after the sermon on Sunday? Oh, you come forward who want to join our church. Here comes a naked man with iron on his hands. You say, we need a new preacher. And that's what the disciples were thinking. We need a new preacher. And you remember that demon-possessed man with, we believe, 6,000 demons in him came and bowed at Jesus' feet. Why? Because he was worshiping Jesus? No. Because he's full of demons. And they knew they were cooked. And what did they do? They come and they want to get Jesus' name. And he doesn't give them his name. He tells them their name. Your name is Legion. Legion was 6,000 foot soldiers. That's the reason we believe there were 6,000 demons there. There were 2,000 pigs. And they say, send us into the pigs. Don't send us out of the area. So Jesus seems to give them their wish. Puts them into the pigs. And then what happens? The pigs go over the ledge into the abyss. And in Hebrew cosmology, at the bottom of the abyss was the opening to hell itself. So Jesus looks like the perfect English gentleman. Let's him go to the pigs. Steps out of the way. The pigs are condemned to everlasting destruction. Just as the demons are. So He cleanses the land of its unclean pigs and He cleanses the land of its unclean demons. And if anybody says, what right does Jesus have? He didn't own that farm. Some old poor, poor pig farmer just saw 2,000 of his pigs destroyed. Hey, does Jesus have the right to do that? You better believe He's got the right to do it. He owns every square inch of this world and every square inch of this universe. And He's taken over completely. And you better get straight with Him. Because He's cleaning the house. And all He did in Mark chapter 5 was to give you a little foretaste of what He's going to do in the end. He's going to clean this mess up. And you can't clean it up and I can't clean it up. He's going to clean it up. And our job is to proclaim Him. And with people who believe in Him, they start the process of cleaning up. We just start our little process. Little kids, you know, trying to clean up like Mama told us. She's the only one who can really clean this thing up. We know that. But we're supposed to learn responsibility because we love our mother. Well, Jesus is the only one who can clean this thing up. We love Him. And we're going to learn what it's like to be like Him. So we're going to start cleaning it up. He's coming at the end and He's going to purge it of all of its demons. That's what we learn in the Gospels. And all this is is fulfillment of that. He is sovereign. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Coming right out of Psalm 2. He is wrathful. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Why do you need to learn to love the wrath of God? Because Jesus is the perfect expression of the wrath of God. You cannot love Jesus Christ as He is unless you love God in His wrath. His just and holy wrath. Otherwise, you're going to create Jesus the enlightened sage. Jesus the universal man. Jesus the sweet Savior. You're going to create something that you like. And that you can get along with. But gentlemen, you can't get along with Him like that at the end day. Let's get along with Him now so we're able to get along with Him when He comes back. And the only way we can get along with Him is if we love Him and give our lives completely to Him with joy in our hearts for everything that He is. And then 
Lastly, in this section, he is supreme. He is king of kings and lord of lords. There's no king that competes with him. There's no lord that has it over him. There is no human potentate who can stand up to him. He is it. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Then lastly, quickly, the, the last battle is a mighty victory. And you see that in verses 17 through 21. The angels summon the vultures. And this is right out of Ezekiel 39. And when we get to Gog and Magog in Revelation 20, that's right out of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And you'll see these two are going together. This is the meaning of Gog and Magog. It's the pagan lands who are trying to threaten Israel. Gog and Magog is the beast and the false prophet and the dragon and everything that opposes you. And they, they think they're going to take over. And Ezekiel says, i got another idea for you, Gog and Magog. And right now, I'm going to call the vultures. Get ready. And right now, gentlemen, you may as well say, vultures, come on, get ready. Start circling. Because our enemies are going down. And you're going to have a nice big meal for yourselves. And that's what the angel is saying. The time is coming. And the leaders are condemned. And you'll find that they exit in the reverse order of their appearance. First of all, you have the dragon presented to you in Revelation 12. And what does the dragon want to do? He wants to destroy the infant child of the mother. He can't get the infant child of the mother. And so he goes after the other children, namely us. That's Revelation 12, which sets the stage. So what's going to happen? Is the dragon going to be able to eat that child or not? Well, guess what? The first thing uh, that happens is that the... uh, False prophet and the beast, the two beasts, one out of the sea, one out of the land come. And then the harlot comes. Okay? So what happens? The harlot has already been destroyed. Here we see the two beasts destroyed. And that's going to leave us the dragon. So now we've got the dragon who is after the little child. And what do you think is going to happen in Revelation 20 to the dragon? He's toast! He's gone! He's out of here! Because Jesus Christ, who was born as a babe in Bethlehem, rises up to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He destroys the beast. He destroys the harlot. And He'll destroy the dragon. Total takeover. And it just makes sense, doesn't it? We better get on the right side. And then lastly, the rest are slain. And you see them here in verse 18, free and slave. It's not just the kings. It's not just the potentates. It's not just the powerful and the wealthy and the rich. It's even the poor. If they don't know Christ, they come under the same judgment. So there's a complete destruction of everything that opposes them. Well, let's close with this. You may be familiar with Will and Ariel Durant, who wrote a ten-volume, The History of Civilization. In one of those uh, volumes, it's entitled Christ and Caesar. And Will Durant, who is not a Christian, I think he's an atheist or an agnostic, at the end of his volume on Christ and Caesar... Uh, you know, looking at several centuries of the, the emerging church and the kingdom of Caesar, the Roman Empire. Here's the way he summarizes it. He says, Caesar met Christ in the arena. And Christ won. <laughs> Hallelujah. Christ wins over every empire that men can put together, including the American Empire. Christ wins over every system of evil, everything that you're dealing with, all the cheating and stealing and unfaithfulness and everything else. Christ wins. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let us pray. Father, thank You for 
such a glorious gift, the Son of God, your very own, who came to take on our flesh and who is glorified in our flesh, who rules over us as one of us, as well as very God of very God. We love you. We adore you. We bow our knee and bow our lives to you. Take us and use us as we now go out into battle using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit that you give us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.